Okay, welcome to our annual Juneteenth uh, keynote lecture and, and celebration or commemoration. I welcome you all. I see the numbers are steadily growing, so we're very excited today. I am Deirdre Cooper Owens, and I am the director of the program in African American History. I uh, also am being assisted today by our African American History Reference Specialist, Jasmine Smith, and also Will Fenton, who's the director of our Scholarly Innovation Program. You can't see them, but they're kind of helping me to keep this together. I am absolutely delighted to have you here. And I just want to say a few words about Juneteenth, because this is the first year, I think, in, in recent memory uh, outside of kind of these large, as sociologists call them, chocolate cities, where the term Juneteenth has really been gaining momentum and um, being recognized. I just received a, a text not too long ago that the state of Virginia has recognized Juneteenth as a state holiday. And so it is in the spirit of commemorating um, true freedom and liberation that we gather in this virtual space all across the nation, possibly the world, uh, to hear what Dr. Walter Greeson is going to share with us in just a minute. For those who are also joining us, I'd like to uh, give a little plug for the library company. It is the country's oldest cultural institution founded in 1731 by Benjamin Franklin. And the library company has a plethora of programs that um, we, we sponsor, but also different divisions. So anywhere from early American history, we have specialists in women's history. Um, we have uh, partnerships with the British Library, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. We do digital humanities projects. So we are also, I, and I'm going to brag here, we're most proud, though, of the program in African American history because it is the anchor program. We really call it our crown jewel. And so we invite you to visit our website. We've just plugged it into the chat feature, and you can look at our digital collections. You can look at our online exhibitions that have been curated over the years and learn a little bit more about American history. So without further ado, Dr. Walter D. Greeson, who has joined us before. He's such a popular speaker that we had to ask him to share his insights and his brilliance with us again. But Dr. Greeson is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Educational Counseling and Leadership at Monmouth University in West Long Branch, New Jersey. Dr. Greeson's research focuses on the comparative economic analysis of slavery, industrialization, and suburbanization. With a variety of co-editors, uh, co Dr. Greeson has published Planning Future Cities in 2017, an innovative look at architecture, urbanism, and, and municipal design. The American Economy 2016, a provocative examination of race, property, and wealth in the United States since 1750, and the Afrofuturist designed textbooks, a textbook, Cities Imagined. His scholarly monograph, Suburban Erasure, won the Best Work of Nonfiction Award from the New Jersey Studies Academic Alliance in 2014. He has also won grants from the Mellon Foundation and the National Endowment for the Humanities in 2016. He is the creator of the hashtag Wakanda syllabus. So go out look at Black Panther, right? and then read his syllabus. The subsequent series of essays can be found on the award-winning website, 
Black perspectives. And so without further ado, we will have a talk about the limits of freedom during Reconstruction, especially in this uh, Juneteenth moment. Dr. Walter Greeson, thank you. Thank you, my goodness. Dr. Cooper Owens, uh, champion, uh, lead historian, someone everyone needs to read everything she's written. So please go out and pick her up as part of the celebration. Um, the works that are done through the library company just inspire me constantly. And uh, as I look through the list of names of people on this call, um, folks who have known me for decades, folks who have just met me, it is just extraordinary to be here with all of you. Um, the celebration of Juneteenth is, is one of these moments where I, as a historian, as an African-American, am just swept away with the power that these, these stories bring, that these lives open up the kinds of opportunities that now made my life possible, are making the lives of my children better. And now we're in this moment in the days after the police killing of George Floyd, where the entire world is connecting with these lessons and connecting with the power of African-American history and of the African diaspora in the modern world. So this chance for me was so tremendous to say, if we celebrate Juneteenth, how do we get the most out of it? How do we come to the place where we look at the long view of the struggle and also see the enormous breakthroughs at different points, but actually help people reimagine what they can do going forward? And to me, that's, that's the core of what we do as historians, what we do as scholars. We're finding pieces of evidence to transform our sense of the possible as we go forward. And so my work has always been about that. But today, I wanted to talk through, I hope not too long a fashion, uh, time for questions and conversation, of course, um, through the rest of the afternoon. But um, to lay a foundation for a set of topics that people have talked about a lot in the last 50 or 60 years among scholars of American history, specifically scholars of African-American history, but to make it more accessible and more useful to folks who are just discovering this evidence and, and the, these narratives. So uh, that's what Unfreedom is going to focus on. Unfreedom, the limits of the 14th Amendment in, or excuse me, after Reconstruction. And um, it does go up to the present day. Um, there is a video version of the talk you'll be able to find online. And to really get into it, I have to lay out a little bit of background about how I came to the idea, why this has such to do. Most of the time when I do Juneteenth talks, it's really much more about the celebration itself. Like how did the idea get constructed in Texas? And so that basic background, you can get a really good sense of it at blackpast.org which for me is always the better version of Wikipedia when you want to get a snapshot of, of the African-American history. But it's really, you see on June 18th of 1865, the arrival of Union forces in uh, Galveston, Texas, and delivering the word, not just of the Emancipation Proclamation or the 13th Amendment, but really the straightforward statement that African-Americans were no longer slaves. And that this moment of jubilee, this moment of freedom realized, is what essentially starts a, a massive regional movement um, that had happened on the East Coast 
earlier that year, but people begin to reunite families. They begin to try and find ways to piece together communities on their own terms. And so the grappling with what freedom means in Texas in the summer of 1865 is a profoundly instructive moment for us today. As we look around us and we must reimagine freedom, that's what these folks were doing in June of 1865. Juneteenth, specifically contracting the idea of June and 19th into a single word, Juneteenth. That realization is the sense of we can do things that we have never done before. The same kind of boundaries and restrictions that have forced us to live with the burden of bondage. This is now in flux, at least, if not gone entirely. And so how do we begin to grapple with this, not just in Texas, not just in Virginia, not just in Mississippi, but across all of the former Confederate states that are then under federal rule? And so a couple of years ago, I started doing discussions with people in this vein about the need for a Freedmen's Bureau or an updated version of local and county organizations dedicated to defining the sense of changing opportunity. How do you give more access to education, more access to healthcare, greater access to and control of the ability to um, build new business and, and participate in these local economies? That process of understanding the Freedmen's Bureau was crucial between 1865 and 1868, that the Congress is empowering the federal forces, the military, to say no for protecting voting rights, to rewrite these contracts where these people were forced to labor in previous times. This effort to say at the local level, there's going to be a new day, we need something similar to that now. The second part of this, for me, beyond understanding what Juneteenth was and how it began to reconstruct the United States, is this piece about Frederick Douglass, which actually goes back more than a decade earlier. And so as I thought about this talk in particular and the idea of unfreedom, my approach to it tonight is framed by Frederick Douglass's 4th of July oration in 1852. That speech, um, today, most people look back to Martin Luther King and the, eight, and the 1963 I Have a Dream speech, and they see King as this, this titanic orator in, in human history. But King, in many ways, is following in the tradition of Frederick Douglass. And Douglass's speech in 1852 sets the table for what we're doing tonight. When he comes to this gathering to celebrate the 4th of July, and he asks the question, what to the, fourth, what to the Negro is your 4th of July? He is pointing out the hypocrisy. He is pointing out the failures of the American Republic to live up to its promises. And those promises are what we're still engaged with today, 160 years later, that we're not living up to these ideas, these, these, these ideals that were framed in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That's where I really start. And it's Douglas's tone, it's Douglas's passion in that speech in saying, you must grapple with African-American perspectives and their, their experiences in being excluded and how they come to exercise autonomy in the function of the society. That is the true measure of what we're seeing in the push towards the Civil War for the abolitionists and certainly for the free people themselves as they try to set the tone for what their lives are going to be between 1865 and 1877 
and for decades following. That rage, that power is what I'm hoping to tap into with all of you tonight so that you hear something of Frederick Douglass's voice in what I'm about to do. That that idea that we must instead say what to the white American is Juneteenth in 2020? What to the white American in 2020 is the Juneteenth celebration? And just before we started this conversation tonight, I saw uh, Governor Cuomo of New York had joined the effort in Virginia to say that this holiday should be for all the state workers. I feel that this should be a holiday that is celebrated for every school. At the end of school year, teachers and students are jubilant to get out of school and to finish their year. Why is Juneteenth not a part of this? This is a crucial way to talk about the transitions every year of how we reaffirm our commitment to freedom. So to get from Douglas's spirit and the idea of the failure of the promise of American virtue, American values, my approach has been over my time as, as a researcher to look at the fundamental question of the inalienable rights of, of American citizens. And so the typical lesson, and some of my students who are in, in the chat will recognize this bit, that when we look at the Declaration of Independence, we say we, are, we know that we have these rights given to us by God, and they are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everyone is taught this as part of basic civics, fifth grade, sixth grade, we get that same lesson. But very rarely do you get folks to then go comparatively analyze what happens a decade later when the Constitution is drafted. What happens to the ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, particularly in the Fifth Amendment within the Bill of Rights? That shift, when you look at the document, is absolutely central to everything that has happened for the next 200 years. In the Fifth Amendment, they say, it is the power of the government to protect life, liberty, and property. Property becomes the stand-in for what was the pursuit of happiness in, in the Declaration of Independence. Now, the Declaration statement is tremendously sexy. Will Smith found it and made hundreds of million dollars off of the idea of pursuing happiness in, in the 21st century and selling a story of corporate uplift, that there was a sense of belonging that an African-American could attain in corporate America. But the pursuit of happiness is not what is protected in the U.S. Constitution. Property as a measure of our pursuit of happiness is there. Can you imagine in a society where we have all the afternoon shows about courtrooms, people fighting over cars and radios and broken doors and windows, if they had to litigate over happiness, how happy am I today and someone who made me unhappy and I can sue them? No, it would choke the entire system of jurisprudence to try and defend every case or prosecute every case of someone violating someone else's happiness. So it's a practical measure in the Constitution to say, instead, let us fight over property. And this becomes the basis of contract law. The vast majority of our legal history is fights around the nature of land or factories or products or intellectual property. They are all these fights around what we can own as an expression of protecting happiness. The most damaging part of this is, of course, that for people of African descent, their pursuit of happiness was never really sanctioned or protected. There are incidental moments where people can say they own a lot and they might be able to sue 
to protect their claim to ownership. But the standard between 1790 and 1830 shifts dramatically. And this is crucial, this pattern of shifting away from the universal protection of inalienable rights, that whole piece is what we're gonna focus on. And so I'm gonna follow the advice and put up some of the slides for us to see today. That shift, when it comes to the ideas of life, liberty, and property, we typically assume that they are equivalent, that these things are held in equal worth. But as I started doing the research around the shifting legal terrain on these ideas, what I came to see over and over again, what happened in the early 19th century was that property became a qualification for the extent to which you enjoyed liberty or life. So let me walk that slowly again, that instead of life, liberty, and property being equivalent protections, property then decided the extent to which your liberty was sacrosanct or that your life was protected. And of course, as you think about this, this will seem to make sense. In fact, the 20th century makes this far stronger claim to saying property determines your life or liberty. But that fundamental sense of the relationship comes out of these early cases in the 18, 18 aughts and the 1810s, this case where the greater your property ownership, the more life and liberty you, you are entitled to enjoy. And of course, the, the most egregious case of this is the status of enslaved Africans, people held in places like Maryland and Virginia and Georgia, the Carolinas, that by dint of being of African descent, being seen as legally black, their claim to freedom, their claim to their lives, and certainly their claim to properties are, are negated. There, there is no real support for it that, that is going to be upheld. And so that sense creates a problem in that we have a binary legally that we talk about a lot as historians, that whiteness gets equated with freedom, with the right to life, with the right to property, that blackness is then held in a state of unfreedom, or bondage. That binary between freedom and bondage that creates this sense that if you belong to one group, you cannot belong to the other, and that it's inherited over time through your lineage. In my work, what I came to focus a lot on was what happens with the abolition of slavery in the northern states, New England and the Mid-Atlantic, and ultimately uh, the Northwest Territory, that in fact, it's not freedom that is extended to black residents in these places but it's not bondage either. It's not the total negation of their privileges and their access to resources. It's in fact this gray area of unfreedom that is the main topic for today. And so over the 19th century, the varieties of unfreedom are wide. And that's where the heart of today's presentation really sits, is exploring all these different varieties of unfreedom. And there are hundreds long before there's a black code or there's a organized regional or national system of Jim Crow, this unfreedom in places like Philadelphia and Baltimore and Boston, Cincinnati, Ohio, 
out to the early years in Chicago and even, even in the 1840s and 1850s in San Francisco, African Americans could move there and find work and start to build lives and hold some land and begin to even start small enterprises. But this is never fully protected. It is always contingent. It is always under threat from mob, mob rule. And then beyond mob rule, state action. And so that process, particularly between 1820 and 1890, that 70-year window, we tend to talk about free black populations in these different states and territories and communities. And it, it creates a kind of rhetorical illusion about them being full citizens and kind of the ways that they mobilize to try and petition for greater rights. And what I'm trying to emphasize here tonight as we talk about Juneteenth is that there is this, this huge array of places where people cannot actually access the full promise of life, liberty, and property. And that unfreedom is the territory we have to explore together. And particularly when it comes to property ownership, that in doing the economic history of these places, you see over and over and over again, even before the peak period of, of Lynch law in the late, 1900, late 1800s, that this effort for African-Americans to enjoy the promise of economic freedom is constantly under threat and being sabotaged and being eroded. And so that piece is where we need to understand the context of why Juneteenth is so transformative, not just in Texas, not just in former slave territories, but in giving the, the chance to redefine the possibility of full freedom, or at least expand it marginally after 1870. So that process for me starts a lot with uh, looking at a place like Philadelphia in the 1830s, where you have a flying horses riot in Southwark and Moyamensing, where African-Americans are beaten and terrorized and forced to flee from their neighborhoods in what people consider the cradle of liberty, this place that stood up and then hosted so much of the abolitionist movement. The overall animus and the call to violence was active there to prevent the degree to which African-Americans could press their claim of freedom. And this is true in dozens of places. This is not just true in, in the major cities that are forming and their so-called free markets. This is true in Cincinnati and Ohio where there are bans against African-Americans moving in. This is true in lots of parts of California where they want to control the size of the African-American population. And if they begin to form these communities, they want to manage and keep those at a smaller scale. And so that movement took me to San Francisco, which set a tone in the 1840s and 1850s for me for saying what was possible in that you see about a thousand African-Americans living in San Francisco in the 1840s, especially after the gold rush. And they're starting to try and build homes and build small businesses and acquire the resources to make a permanent community there. Um, so much so that after the Civil War, after pressing and pushing for greater freedoms in that community, you had almost 3,000 people living in the community and they begin to expand and build churches and you're seeing the roots of what's making a thriving, prosperous black community take root in San Francisco. But there's still backlash, there's still violent attacks on African Americans who show that they can make a claim towards full equality. And so that struggle continues through the end of the 19th century. 
that even on the frontier, this mythical place in the American imagination where if there are boundaries in the older states and the major cities on the Atlantic coast, that you can go out and find a way to become free. And we see this in, in various stories that from the Watchmen on HBO, they talk about this related to Tulsa, Oklahoma, from the way we look at um, sheriffs like um, Sheriff Bass out in Oklahoma, who was actually a lawman and was able to press and kind of redefine the idea of black authority being respected. Those are all within boundaries of unfreedom. There are all still limits whether it's called Jim Crow or a black code or just the way that racial terror became more common as riots or lynchings in this period. That unfreedom is the defining feature that shapes reconstruction. And so, so much of what we think about in terms of racial violence and the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan, the way that the redemption governments of the Democratic Party retook the South by 1875, by 1876, and, and then aggressively reversed the ability for people to participate in juries or to maintain schools or to vote. This crackdown is what I focus on in industrial segregation. Industrial segregation becomes this way of using systems of informal and violent terrorism and making them part of state operations, particularly when it comes to organizations like the police or fire departments or planners that emerge in the 1880s and 1890s, that segregation and the limit on black freedom, the kind of, the way unfreedom becomes more standardized by the start of the 20th century, shapes everything that we know for the last 100 years. And so that concept of unfreedom is essential when we come to study the 14th Amendment and particularly the limits on it. This is the longest piece of this talk. And so I wanna make sure, no, not gonna jump ahead just yet. Um, when we look at the 14th Amendment and its passage in 1868, I find, at least in, in the literature that I had read as I taught these courses, people tended to focus a great deal on the 13th Amendment and, and, and especially now that we've seen some attention to the prison industrial complex, people have taken on the critical lens of saying, um, well, it's a limited abolition. There is no full abolition of slavery because as a punishment of incarceration, you can still legally be held as state property and forced to labor. And so we, we've had some really good strides in the last 20, 25 years to grapple with the 13th Amendment. And I think the Supreme Court's actions a few years ago to um, limit the power of the Voting Rights Act to essentially hollow it out has made us go back and look at the 15th Amendment in more detail and talk about how do we press the Congress to look more broadly at the continuing evolution of disenfranchisement, the ways that we attempt to create long lines and we prevent people from being able to exercise their right to vote. I think, again, we, we've had some solid work in various different fields from legal to education to civil rights history that talks about the 15th amendment and and how it has never really been full, fulfilled my struggle has been in teaching civil rights courses in getting people to appreciate the depth and the power of the 14th amendment and why in fact the majority of northern states even voted against it 
that it would not have been adopted had it not been for the former Confederate states being forced to and compelled to as a result of their re-entry to the Union. Uh, my home state in New Jersey, hostile to the 14th Amendment, um, resisted adopting it, thought it was too radical. And that's the promise that struck me a few years ago, I wanna say maybe 15 years ago, time is passing me too quickly. Um, at an AP advanced placement, U.S. history uh, grading, um, they have these giant gatherings where teachers come and they grade these exams. And I was sitting at one of my tables and then looking at the test and, and the table leader gave the instruction that said, well, when we ask students to write about the 14th Amendment, we have to make them realize or we're going to evaluate them that says that if it's more important than the Homestead Act that uh, enabled the settlement of the West, um, the 14th Amendment is less important than the Homestead Act. That that's how we will go through and evaluate um, these students' responses on this exam. And, and I really had to get up. I had to get up from the table <laughs> and, and walk around and kind of check with some of the other folks in my neighborhood that were around the room and come back and really sit with the table leaders. And say, um, I, I can't, I, I cannot look at these students' essays. <laughs> And, and punish them for arguing that the 14th Amendment is, is as important or more important than the Homestead Acts. And it became an issue. It became an enormous conversation where multiple supervisors were called to the table to say, how do we, do we balance this? And, and the table leader refused to kind of acknowledge that the 14th Amendment um, utterly transforms the notion of what it means to be an American citizen in ways that shape our, our daily sense of freedom profoundly to this moment. <laughs> and um, this is someone who is a leader, um, who shapes state standards and curricula, um, and has had a long career teaching the nature of American history and American politics. And, and literally that day won the fight at the table to say, this is how we evaluate it. I had to leave and find another table to go and, and do my work at because I would not endorse the standard. That is the work that I'm asking you all to do today, is that as we look at reconstruction and we look at the idea of unfreedom and how do we combat it, the 14th Amendment is a profound tool that we need to maximize in this moment to say what is going to be the new standard for our lives in this century. The 14th Amendment in our standard teaching of it comes down to two parts. The most straightforward part is the due process clause within the amendment that says at the federal level, if a state or some other actor of state or private authority should deprive someone of their individual rights to life, liberty, or property, they will be granted due process in the federal court system to resolve that claim. And so this is a, a profound broadening of the federal powers, that this was previously solely for the individual states. And so very important, and we've seen it over and over again, that when states fail to defend their individual citizens in one way or another, they can then make the claim at the federal level for further protections, especially as we've seen in the last 50 years regarding civil rights protections. And so that's profound. It's a huge expansion of federal authority that makes the entire union stronger and also simultaneously strengthens individual protections, at least in the way that it was envisioned. 
Much more important, however, is the Equal Protection Clause. And it's always fascinating. My students always come and they dig into the Equal Protection Clause because prior to its adoption, the only equality in the United States was equality among the several states. The states were equal to each other. And the federal government was to maintain the equality among the states. But individual equality? This is the radical promise that every citizen gets to enjoy the rights and protections that another citizen enjoys. Just two days ago, we saw the Supreme Court in, in a stunning decision protect gay and lesbian and trans populations from employment discrimination under the same guideline that it says there are these other protected groups that's it's illegal to discriminate against them. And so we will extend this protection. This is something inherent about who they are that says they cannot be discriminated against on these grounds. That is a extension of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause says that there must be equal citizenship. You cannot have tiers of citizenship. That's one group of citizens have more rights and privileges or less rights and privileges than others. That basic principle is what we thought we had and was being celebrated in Galveston with Juneteenth, was the end of a particular kind of unfreedom that said different people could be treated differently depending on what they looked like or where they came from or what language they spoke or what religion they practiced. All of a sudden, there was a new boundary and protection to say, no, if you are here, if you are American, you will enjoy the same protections. The 14th Amendment is profound in that way. It changes us against the principle of saying your property determines your life and liberty in its fullest sense. It makes it possible that the property has equal protections, that our lives and liberties have equal protections, but that one doesn't become contingent on the others. What happens in the wake of Reconstruction is that we see the erosion of that radical promise for fully 150 years. That we struggle and fight and die trying to come to the place where we think that maybe there can be an advance or an expansion of freedom or a reduction of the gray area of unfreedom in the name of saying equal protection. More than anything in my study of civil rights, particularly in the North and the Midwest, is the story between 1901 and 1954 of how people in local communities rose up and sued their state government and said, I deserve equal protection, equal access to the train car or to the schoolhouse or to the beach or restaurant or store. Thousands of small cases, often supported by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, but not always, where folks are pushing for equal access under the 14th Amendment that they feel they cannot get at the federal level, but that the principle in the Constitution can stand up and start to dismantle Jim Crow segregation for them. That effort to realize the equal promise, the promise of equal justice for all people, that is what we're still doing. We have never realized the idea that unfreedom itself 
is abhor abhorrent, is the worst violation of our principles that caused the Civil War, that we're trying to stand up for a united and diverse population that shares in the bounty of freedom. That's the work that we need to do today, that we have to look, instead of seeing the imaginative creativity to maintain and expand on freedom, we need that imagination and creativity to expand freedom. That when we try to see resources shared, that we're not running into barrier after barrier after barrier. Just this week, uh, last Friday, I had a meeting with folks locally about how to do a Juneteenth celebration. And the conversation was between a young group of black women standing up and getting organized to say, this is how we're going to celebrate and press against the discrimination and segregation that we face here in this community. And the elected officials had granted the audience for them to come together and work and figure out how to move forward. But the responses to the women's requests were constantly, well, we can't do it there, and we can't do it that way, and we must not, we have to step back from the way that you're approaching it. And this is in the first five to 10 minutes. And I had to say, let's stop, stop, time out. Let's stop saying what they can't do and what we can't pull off, and instead hear them and turn to a place where we say, well, this is what is possible. This is what I see we can do based on what we're saying. And it changes the entire tone. It changes everything when we say, we hear you and we value what you're trying to accomplish and this is how I can contribute to your vision. This is how I can help you move forward to do something new. That's what the 14th Amendment was about. But the Supreme Court in a series of decisions made it about those with property. They made it about people who particularly who could form corporations gaining additional protections under the 14th Amendment and that people who were working class immigrants or freed African Americans, they were not, they did not have the same access to create these companies. And even if they managed to pull it off, those companies did not have the same corporate protections that a US Steel or a Union Pacific Railroad or a JP Morgan Bank would enjoy. There was tiered citizenship despite the 14th Amendment that created new levels of unfreedom. That's what we need to address as systemic change going forward. That's what the millions, billions of people around the world are calling out for. They recognize the forces of industrial order that shaped globalization, that built on the idea of segregated opportunity, that only some people enjoy full freedom and everyone else has to settle for some degree of unfreedom. It was not enough to abolish formal bondage, except for incarceration. It was not enough to allow for massive degrees of surveillance and unfreedom where people are now fearful of what they put online and what's going to happen to them if someone sees their picture at the wrong place and will they get fired. This call for systemic change is for us to reinvent the order of the world today. And it's not work that's gonna be done in two months or in 12 months. It's work that's going to take decades. Reconstruction itself lasted for eight years. Then the effort to reinforce the unfreedom of segregation stretched for another 150 years and continues today. 
Don't mistake, there are 30% of the people in this country with strong representation saying, no, no, it's too much. We cannot move towards greater freedom for all. And they fight it with every tool at their disposal. And we don't pay attention and we don't understand that there are opponents to what is being called for. We're hoping that the popular moment will carry the day, but we must be organized. And that's the last part of what I hope to talk about with you today, is this notion of industrial segregation and unfreedom and systemic change. What does that really look like? And we have to start with the case of George Floyd, and not just George Floyd, but Breonna Taylor, and the hundreds of men and women whose lives are taken from them in ways that, and, that are protected and sustained and encouraged by the system that we have put in place. When people are talking about defunding the police, they are not talking about, well, there are folks who are actually looking at the abolition of the way we understand police and surveillance and the militarized abuse that we have seen. But that is not saying there will not be some kind of safety or order or the kinds of protections that we've enjoyed. In fact, it's asking us to be more critical about the way that we stand up, protect, and care for each other. That we need to reimagine the order that is not rooted in slavery and segregation. This is the challenge as we see policing having to go through a process of being fundamentally reformed. And we're seeing people resign from the police because they don't want to have restrictions on use of violence to suppress the population. There is no greater evidence that we need change in that sector, but we must go further. It's not just about policing. In the context of the expertise we see from Dr. Cooper Owens, when we come to healthcare and medicine and the disparities that black women face when it comes to just standard care, let alone when they become pregnant, let alone when they age, the abuses that black women have faced are horrific. And we've not, we've barely scratched the surface in documenting them. And we must move to the place where that never happens again, where our hospitals and our doctors and our surgeons and our pharmacists are all held to a higher standard that does not reinforce the systemic racism that we see every day. For me, I work in a school of education and I work with some of the best educators in the world. New Jersey is ranked number one in the United States for the quality of our education system. But when it comes to talking about racism and specifically about anti-racism, how do we dismantle inequality in our school districts every day? In our private schools, which are held up as segregated academies, where people do not come together and they struggle to recognize that they have intentionally chosen to pay a premium to stay away from black and Latino families. All of that must be on the table to open up the doors and share the abundance of what we've created. The education systems are the key to our democracy. They're the key to the promise of freedom worldwide. And as we restrict it, we restrict ourselves. But most importantly, the last part that I've worked the most on in the last 15 years, and I was happy I saw a couple of my students who were from my Drexel class where I taught um, race and economic history for the first time that are in the chat with us today. Our economy 
and particularly the roles of leadership and authority within our economy, they have become the temples of segregation that Martin Luther King described as Sunday morning being the most segregated hour in the United States. You look around Wall Street, you look around our Federal Reserve offices, you look at the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 3000, these places have no opportunities to open for people of color to move to the top, for women to move to the top. I've been in conversation with folks who are doing the work of maintaining globalization since February, just to kind of think about how do we rebuild from COVID-19, from the kind of global protests. And the imagination about bringing more people to the table expanding our financial infrastructure to the people who have extraordinary creativity but don't access the resources through microlending and can't sustain new ventures to build the most competitive, the most just, the most inclusive economy. Our financial and economic systems are predicated on rewarding the commitment to unfreedom and segregation, and it must change. We cannot go forward in a society that prevents any chance to succeed for the vast majority of humanity. And we have the tools to reinvent this. We have seen co-ops and food services and spontaneous kind of beyond philanthropy initiatives that meet our human needs, that let us have energy and transportation, clean air and water in ways that are sustainable for us and will actually save our planet and deal with the crisis of climate change. This is the work we have to stand up to and share in the com coming weeks ahead. And so as I close, I want to say, I look back to the people who inspired me before I ever became an academic. I look back to someone like Steve Biko and the film that featured the genius of his life out of Hollywood called Cry Freedom. In South Africa, they cried freedom from 1960 to 1994, and they rebuilt their society in the mold of democracy. And they are continuing to push towards economic justice and equal freedom for all people in their society. Today, we look and we see people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor calling out for freedom from Minneapolis and from Houston that we look around Tennessee and we look to Atlanta and we look to New Jersey and New York and Los Angeles, everywhere around the world, a billion people are crying out for freedom today in precisely the ways that we can build it based on the Freedmen's Bureau of Reconstruction, based on the colored conventions of the pre-Civil War era. We have these tools to learn and share together. Today is our Juneteenth, not just for a historical celebration, Today is our Juneteenth to cry freedom for our children and our grandchildren and everyone in the generations ahead. Everywhere around the world, they can look back to this moment and cry freedom and say thank you for the choices we make. I ask you today to join with me in crying freedom as we celebrate Juneteenth and make a new day where unfreedom is just part of the past. Thank you. Thank you. I will do the applause. For those who can't hear, thank you so much, Dr. Greeson. Such compelling words. Um, 
I like that you have ended by giving us a charge, each and every one of us, to try to um, transform um, what needs to be transformed. And so with that, um, let me just say, I'm, I'm gonna do another plug before I open up uh, the Q&A and we've already received some questions. So I'll, I'll read those for you. And if anyone else uh, has burning questions or comments, please use the Q&A function. But I'd also like to uh, recognize Dr. Michael Versanti, who is the director of the Library Company of Philadelphia. He really has been uh, quite visionary uh, as the director of this institution. Uh, but more than that, uh, Dr. Bersanti has also uh, been very supportive of the program in African-American history. And for that, we are eternally grateful. He is uh, a part of the reason why we have this kind of programming. All right, so I am going to uh, read these questions to you uh, in the order that they appeared in the Q&A. So the first question is from Steve Dow. Steve Dow says, I'm a white guy trying to help other white people to recognize systemic racism. Many have their ears plugged and their eyes closed. Is there a police harassment database that's trusted and can be used to help demonstrate the issue? So that's one of the huge rallying points in both states and federal government. And I know that the Congress has taken up negotiations around that specific issue. Um, one thing I know I've seen over and over in multiple states and cities are folks who are let go from one police force and then their record is essentially expunged and they can get hired at uh, other police forces in, in neighboring communities. And so it has led to folks who had abusive records be getting new opportunities to continue the abuse. And so um, I know that they're trying to draft this through the state of New York. Um, I believe out in California, they're also negotiating a way to create a database. And I believe it's, it's then the coordination, even if we're managed to get the legislatures to act and the governors to sign, that then you need to coordinate and have them all be searchable. And I, I do know that's been one of the pieces of the New York legislature's negotiation is making their database searchable. I believe there was a federal judge who also, or maybe it's an Illinois judge, who had also said that they were not going to delete the years of records that they had kept. And so, yeah, we're negotiating this in our legislatures and the more you call your representatives and kind of speak to your support for it, to talk one-on-one -on -one often with people about the importance of just general public safety and not having um, people who are dangerous in uniform, um, that does make an enormous difference. Thank you. So this is from Carolyn Klepser. And uh, Carolyn typed in the question during the unfreedom portion of your talk. She, she writes, it seems to me that sexism is the elephant in the room. Women of all races, which constitute half the population, had to wait another generation to vote. Aren't you just talking about men's quarrels among themselves? I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> that was ne never my intention. And if I can be emphatic about one thing, I believe that by opening the door to women of color and, and really intersectional women's analyses that deal with questions of disability and language as well. I think when we bring women to the center of these debates, um, particularly when we talk about in incarceration and the sexual abuse of women by police, um, there are just no controls. Um, 
in, in my research initially on suburbanization, I was coming across stories of women who were routinely being sexually assaulted when stopped by police in the 70s and 80s. And, and this was just considered normal practice. So thankfully, there are so many more controls against those kinds of behaviors, but they still occur. And so, no, placing women's liberation at the heart of human liberation is, is conceptually the only move to make. And so I guess in particular, when we say sexism, there, there are so many layers to it. I don't mean to conflate it. And I think we, we've seen in many ways, I think uh, 2016 brought into clear focus the way that I guess women who identify as white often don't or they ignore the sexism they face or the sexual violence they face, um, even at the expense of women of color who, who share kind of similar abuses uh, being inflicted on them. And that, the way we control men is one level and get men to reimagine masculinity in ways that are healing and nonviolent. There's also a thing about white women and the way that racism gives them a blind spot when it comes to confronting sexism. And just from hearing and listening to women like Professor Cooper Owens, black women have sustained a critique for generations about white women not really being very even-handed in confronting sexism when it involves white supremacy. And so I think there's a lot to unpack there and I probably go through and talk another hour <laughs> on, on just the way that to me, womanism, I, I frankly, am, I'm on the line between womanism and black feminism as kind of where my scholarship draws its inspiration from. But those are the forces that I believe a lot of, of white women need to engage with. And I'll say very frankly, in my context, there are a lot of Latinx and Chicanx feminists that need greater voices in my community because so many of the migrant women that have come to the suburbs of New Jersey face just horrific abuses at the hands of police and of their husbands and of school officials. And so getting their voices at the center of these debates is a huge priority for me as, as I continue from this conversation. Thank you. Next, we have Antoinette Levitt, who asks, would the outcome of the death of George Floyd have been different had he been murdered by a black cop? I have encountered those who say that would never happen. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't, I, the people I know that are within the um, prison abolition movement that, that have a strong critique and a systemic set of solutions for dealing with the crimes we see that, that have taken so many people from us, uh, there's no illusion that African American police or people of African descent in the police force are somehow immune from inflicting violence and, and taking the lives of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, no, <laughs> um, that's not the case. I know many uh, Latinx and, and, and Chicanx officers and also uh, Asian and Asian Indian, uh, South Asian uh, folks in law enforcement. There's a training issue in terms of how people are trained to engage in criminal justice and law enforcement. And it's, it's not just police, it's also prosecutors, it's also public defenders. The way the entire system is structured and the expectations that, under, that sit underneath it about who gets treated how based on 
patterns and um, algorithms that are predicting how stop and frisk is a proactive and effective measure. This destroys people's lives completely unnecessarily, and it doesn't have to have to do with the ethnicity or the national origin of the officer. They're, they're trained to do the same things. Thank you. Uh, an anonymous attendee asks, what remedies do you see for systemic, uh, excuse me, systematic gentrification in large cities? <laughs> somebody somebody knows, knows, knows something about me brought the question on gentrification. Um, so my life is, is built around questions of um, gentrification, displacement of working in poor populations in urban centers, and even in smaller suburban um, metro, kind of regional metropolitan centers, and then ultimately erasure. How are vulnerable communities not just destroyed and removed, but actually forgotten and, and taken off the, out of historical memory? Um, the policy solutions when it comes to something like gentrification, um, we've turned entirely away from public housing, and I think that's been a mistake. Um, we need to reinvest in the way that we provide housing for folks who, who need subsidized access, whether they're disabled or whether they have, you know, just they're aged or they face, you know, temporary setbacks in life. Um, public housing is a huge solution to start to counter some of that. And so beyond that, I believe we've, and, and I think of my friend David Freund, who wrote a book called Colored Property uh, that talked about these patterns uh, almost 20 years ago. The perverse incentives in our real estate markets uh, drive certain kinds of redevelopment and displacement and gentrification. And so if we shift the reward structures, and, and most of my work is about giving greater financial incentives for historic preservation, both in urban centers and in suburban and rural communities. There are ways we can reward banks and real estate developers for preserving endangered communities. And that would do so much more even beyond public housing if we just gave a better set of incentives and financial rewards to people to stop gentrification. Right now, the rewards for gentrification are massive on the scale of if you put in a dollar, you'll get back 10,000 or $100,000. We need to change these extraordinary reward systems that enable people who redevelop land to actually say, oh, I can put a dollar into keeping a community together and rebuilding it with the people who are there and I'll still make another $10,000 on my dollar or I'll make another $50,000 on my dollar. And I don't necessarily need to make the $100,000 on the dollar that I made. Those kinds of transformations of our economic incentives would, would revolutionize the entire, not just national landscape, but the international landscape too. Great, thank you. So this is a question I am going to brag as I did yesterday. I am so proud of my interns. The program in African-American history has been very proud to sponsor, I call them some of our nation's best and brightest young minds. Um, and so we have a cohort of five interns this year. Christophorus Sassarus, who is headed to grad school, uh, he asks, on the topic of industrialization, I was wondering how unfreedom may relate to the outsourcing of several industries in the past few decades. Has this outsourcing had an effect on unfreedom in the United States? And if so, how? 
So there, there's a lot of sustained analysis on this now. When I first started reading on the subject back in early 90s, late 80s, uh, people were just starting to think in terms of deindustrialization and the kinds of impacts on, on major industrial centers across the Midwest. And, and now it's, it's very clear. I mean, um, Bernie Sanders has built two campaigns, presidential campaigns, around these questions. And I think more interestingly, I've seen a number of small senators and representatives represent, representing small rural communities that were tied into industrial development, also advocating for more protectionist policy from, from a, a right-wing standpoint that kind of addresses some of what your question looks at. And yes, globalization has dramatically increased unfreedom in the United States. And uh, most of the time when you look in business news, the Financial Times, The Economist, they talk about this as um, savings in terms of the, the labor markets they encounter. And so how much does it cost to uh, employ Chinese factory workers or, or Indian factory workers versus what it costs to employ someone in Ohio or Michigan or Tennessee. And um, someone did this recently, there's a bike shortage in the United States because so many bikes in the United States are manufactured in China and China's in industrial capacity is still recovering. And because of that, people are now saying, well, now we need to make bikes in the United States. And the joke among the investors is that yes, sure, if you wanna pay four times as much for your bike, if your cheapest bike is gonna cost $500, your nicest bike is gonna cost, you know, eight or nine, $10,000. Yeah, we can make the bikes in the United States. And that's the disciplining of the labor market that has driven the last five decades of deindustrialization. Is people saying, oh, the cost to consumer is too high. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, essentially, it's collapsing the US middle class. Like at best, you're seeing folks who are former comfortable upper middle class professionals struggling to stay in the lower middle class. And it's, it's, we've got a system that rewards speculation and entrepreneurship for a very, very small group of people. And so um, I could walk through a lot about the economics of just annual salaries. And then beyond that, the way wealth is shifting in the United States. Um, again, I don't know if I want to bore everybody with, you know, why Jeff Bezos is worth a hundred, or 200 or 300 billion dollars, whatever it is today, or, and why he's shooting to be the first trillionaire and why that's really problematic. Um, we could walk through all the numbers and, and, and get at it. But yeah, the dismantling of what it meant to be middle class and be able to have a sixth or an eighth grade education and earn a salary that could sustain a family, that's, that disappeared by the middle of the 1980s. And really for the people who have worked for the last 30 years in this country, it's that you have to find ways. And, and I'm, I know I have people on this call who have ripped me for, for doing this. Um, I've been teaching people for years how to maximize multiple streams of income. How do you generate different ways that you don't live off of a single income? Now that helps people survive in a very competitive market where you can't really be stable in the middle class, but it's the opposite of what we had as a stable national economy up until the early 1980s. And so, um, yes, unfreedom has become much more expansive and has swallowed most of what we thought of as the American working and middle class since 1980. Thank you so much.
Um, so I am going to offer up apologies to this poster um, because I'm going to say your name two different ways. It's either Ivan Juren or Ivan Hurin. So I apologize if, if I mispronounced your name. Um, but ask a really, uh, just a really great, great question. Uh, should the Reconstruction era be equally taught to the Civil War, especially military history? Too often it is neglected by social studies curricula. I would, I would guess probably that this is a teacher. <laughs> yeah, no, this, this is one of the things that um, I, I thought a lot about in the context uh, of coming to do this tonight that there has been such a flurry of new work on Reconstruction at, uh, among, among scholars that, that secondary school teachers especially must take advantage. There's just so much good new work that has come about. And I would say it's also true for the Civil War that the, the critical eye on the way that we've studied the Civil War has never been sharper. And so um, the, the way that we teach Civil War and Reconstruction I do think it is one of these systemic ways that we think about change and that typically at the high school level in the US, we divide the United States in two parts, two years. Um, so one year that goes up till the end of the Civil War and then another that starts with Reconstruction and will go, if it's very lucky, we'll get up to you know, Vietnam. Typically it'll, it'll get to World War II and stop shortly thereafter. Maybe, maybe you'll get into the early 1960s and something like the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis. But um, the ability to bring more research faster to the P through 12 system is a huge part of my life. Like the, the success that we've had in taking parts of economic history and social history and bring it through social media so that it turns into a product like the 1619 Project, where you get a wide range of voices from historians that have changed the way we understand transatlantic slavery, and then it's, it's the abolitionist movement, and then how people pressed for the kinds of changes we see in Reconstruction. That work is vital, and it's got to continue for another decade, and, and really in perpetuity. Um, I would say bringing military history to take a serious look at Reconstruction would be amazing. So much of it was done through the lens of African-American history and social history um, that the military, when you look at the Freedmen's Bureau as something that relied on the presence of uh, the, the U.S. Army, there, there's not enough. There are people who have written about it and have published articles and there are some really good books, but not enough. And so we needed to get taught. And, and I'll, I'll close with this. This is a kind of standard piece that I'll, I'll talk about in workshops that it takes normally a, a professional historian a year, you know, sometimes six months to a year and a half to generate the data from the archive to publish an article and get it through the publication process and peer review. And then the article will get out there and people will read if they're interested and they'll take pieces from it and new research will come. and. Maybe it'll get into an edited book and that'll be another year or two. But the process from when the archival research is happening till it gets to a textbook is almost never less than a decade. It's very rare that new research in a journal gets rapidly turned into what is gonna be consumed by secondary classrooms or middle school classrooms. In some cases, I'll, I'll tell you, 
children in my household were reading resources in secondary school that came from the 1970s and 1980s. Their materials were 30 years old. And then they're coming to me as their dad and saying, uh, this isn't what you said. And I was like, well, <laughs> I've been reading a lot more than what the folks <laughs> who, who put the book together that you're using were able to put, put in there. And so what I found is a blessing in, in so many online venues is that really amazing top-notch scholarship is getting into the hands of teachers and writers faster. So that within a year or two or three years, you're getting much more sophisticated and updated content into the classrooms. And so I do think we have a chance to focus on reconstruction, at least on the same level as we do with the Civil War. Great. And also, I just want to add uh, Antoinette Levitt, who asked the question earlier about the policeman, the black policeman. She just wanted to add some context because she said it might not have been clear. She was just saying that had a black policeman um, would would have been treated differently, um, but uh, would a black policeman never take the extreme method used by uh, the white policeman? So she was trying to clarify, like, would a black policeman have put his knee on the neck of jo uh, George Floyd for nearly nine minutes? So that was her clarification. I mean, it's it's very hypothetical, but I don't want to get too much into my personal life, but I have members of my family in law enforcement who have justified comparable kinds of action. And I'll say very specifically, when it, when it came to the incident in um, Staten Island um, with Eric Gardner, um, I had family members who were law enforcement who were like, yeah, that was entirely appropriate. So no, um, I don't believe their background would have stopped them necessarily from doing that. I, I can't emphasize enough, it, it's the training that changes the worldview of the people who go through that, that creates this kind of lethal risk that, that we've seen far too often. Thank you. Another question uh, from another brilliant intern, Tiffany Toombs asks, uh, being that capitalism in many ways is a racialized system that restricts the access of people of color to higher spaces in society, would you agree that a new system is needed for actual equality to take place uh, being that racism is so deeply embedded in America's foundation? So great, great question. Thank you for that. And that's, that is the heart of the debate we face right now. Um, typically, the more conservative folks I deal with, the folks who are all in the banks and the, and the major leadership institutions, law, um, elected service in government, they all want to preserve as much as possible. And I think they need to let that go. Um, we need radical imagination right now. And so what I try not to get too caught up in um, as, as a really pragmatic person is the notion of which ideolo ideological system should we then turn to. And I'm much more about opening the door to reconstructing what we have when it comes to saying, is this going to be capitalist? Is this going to be socialist? Is this going to be communist? Whatever ism is system you want to get into the theory of debating. And I'm, I'm from a tradition out of Philly where, you know, there were a lot of fights I was in that were about Trotskyites versus Stalinists and these kinds of different schools of communist thought and the gradations of, of socialism. And I look at somebody like Kwame Nkrumah, who does not get studied anywhere near enough, and, and his idea of conscientism, the way that we see our conscience and our morals driving the way our economics work. This is 
comparable to a lot of Christian economic systems that I see at local levels in counties across the country, where there is a developed nonprofit philanthropic center that runs through churches and service organizations that partners with businesses and diverts as much as 30% of their local economy to deal with social service needs. Now, I'm not saying that's ideal or what we should go for, but it is decidedly different from what we have embraced as a kind of form of global digital capitalism, where essentially if you don't own a high-use website, you're not going to generate sufficient revenue to be very competitive. There are so many different ranges of options, especially when we let, let people locally determine what they want to work for them. And that's really what I'm advocating for. Yes, there has to be a new system. The system we have is not serving close to 4 billion people worldwide. The process of reconstructing and creating a new system, I don't want that to get tripped up on what label we want to attach to it. Thank you. This one is a really great question from Sharice Jones Branch, a fellow historian. And Dr. Jones Branch asks, how can uh, we better incorporate discussions about rural black activism into discussions about civil war and reconstruction? She says that we've really missed the mark by focusing on rural black oppression rather than rural black empowerment. My goodness, there is so much there. And um, if there's ever a chance we can feature her voice and bring her to the front, we, we definitely need to do that to, to feature that, that ongoing exploration. Um, anybody, any African-American historian I, I've met who understands um, the stories of the Exodusters, the enormous resilience of African-Americans prior to the Civil War in the South, um, in the Civil War, and then through the Reconstruction period knows how true what she's saying is. The ability of those families, those communities to survive and then thrive despite the, the monumental opposition they faced, we do not tell those stories anywhere near enough. And my, my most personal connection to it is the story of T. Thomas Fortune, who, who was born in Mariana, Florida, and his work with his, under his father learning about the chances of local, state, and federal government to intervene and having, in very real terms, the opportunity of Reconstruction snatched from his family and from his community in, in some of the most violent and, and bloody ways that you could imagine. Fortune takes that and turns it into an enormous network of newspapers and magazines based out of New York City that transforms and makes possible what we consider the Tuskegee movement. This idea of constructing historically black colleges and universities and building churches in regional public schools. That story about the success of black people in the rural South, and not just in the rural South, but the rural North and the rural Midwest, the Mountain West, and out to the Pacific West, black people in these small towns and communities did miraculous work. And it's not just Tulsa and it's not just Rosewood. If I was gonna say one thing in response to that question, I am so thankful for the partners I have with the Zora Neale Hurston Fest, um, at, at T. Thomas Fortune Cultural Center, out at Michigan State with Julian Chambliss and at Spellman with uh, Michelle Bachelor Robinson. These folks are doing the active work of preserving and restoring historic black towns and settlements 
that is all about the resilience of black rural leaders and, and the families and communities they serve. So I, I do think that is gonna be one of the richest veins of new history in the decade ahead. Wonderful, and I also wanna shout out uh, the work of, her book is gonna be coming out soon, Melissa Stuckey at uh, Elizabeth City State University who also does a lot of work on exodusters. So yeah, I, you're right, I think it's the newest turn. All right, um, I think this might be our last question. Once again, from Christophorus Sassarus. Um, I, I don't know why Christophorus is going into English instead of history, but maybe we can bring him <laughs> to our side. So he has a, a number of questions and uh, just, I'm, I'm aware of the time, so I'm going to try and collapse them. Uh, he says, what are some of the specific ways that unfreedom uh, is, let's see here, how does unfreedom relate to the rights of people who are in the gray area of permanent residency? For example, green card holders who are not technically citizens on paper. So I think that's the one I'll highlight. Great. No, really, really insightful question and uh, strikes close to home. I have a lot of people in my life, including faculty colleagues, are, are in that category. And the the limitations on their freedom are, are profound. And I don't think people who enjoy citizen status really appreciate it enough uh, what, what they have that other people who are resident in the United States do not. And so I think that's kind of a chance for me to harken back to the point about connecting immigrant and migrant community discussions to the center of what we consider unfreedom. Um, in my home community, there have been sustained campaigns by um, ICE to take people off the street, place them in the county jail, no charges, um, no contact. They are functionally disappeared and often then deported into highly dangerous situations in um, Central and, and South America. And with no accountability, their families are left with, with just at, at the goodwill of whatever neighbors they can find. And so getting through and understanding the limitations that people do not and cannot negotiate, um, they have no ability to really challenge or have standing to secure basic safety in, in this country. Um, I have so many young people in local school districts around me who face these issues. We saw the recent kind of um, today's Supreme Court statement that um, DACA cannot be overturned, but is still vulnerable. Um, those questions about folks who are green card holders and the kind of limits, I think are our textbook cases of restrictions on what we imagine freedom to be. And I would go further. Um, a lot of the work I've done on, on global economics is about comparing the idea of being a free citizen in the United States or Canada or the United Kingdom or in the Eurozone to being a free citizen in Saudi Arabia or Brazil or Australia, um, Singapore. There are just dramatic differences in what we imagine to be freedom let alone the expansive territory of unfreedom globally is just massive. And um, if I could plug something that I'd, I'm hopeful that there are a few folks from around the world on, on the call, but 
in the different places around the world. As you study the history of the United States and particularly African, African American history and African diaspora history, thinking of unfreedom in your national context is really central. That is the connecting idea that says what you can do and what you can't do and what is the gray area where you have risk. As you articulate and look at your world that way, that's where you can start to tap into the stories that we're talking about through programs like this at the library, library company. Thank you so much. Um, once again, I am just so pleased. A number of the uh, folk who asked questions sent private messages to say thank you for your answer. Um, they wish you the best. Um, and we at the library company and the program in African American history are really pleased to be able to have um, at some points, you know, inspirational, other points, um, sobering message around the origins of Juneteenth, but also the importance of citizenship and what that means for so many people who have not always shared in uh, the promise of citizenship and the actual tangible form of what citizenship means. So thank you for giving that uh, to us. If I can uh, say one little thing at the end, um, I've had a really old and outdated website for like a long time, 16, 17 years. So a new website is launching tonight as part of the Juneteenth celebration. And if you guys want more of this stuff or any resources I can provide, there's a ton of free stuff. Please just let me know, stay in touch, uh, reach out by email or on any social media. I, I love doing this work with all of you. Thank you, thank you. Um, so another person says, thank you so much. Um, what a wonderful talk. So I'm gonna end on a, 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 using a quotation by the esteemed uh, writer, Ralph Ellison on Juneteenth. And so I have to do what, what people my age do and, and actually lift my glasses up as I read. But what a feeling can come over a man just from seeing the things he believes in and hopes for symbolized in the concrete form of a man and something that gives a focus to all other things he knows to be real, something that makes unseen things manifest and allows him to come to his hopes and dreams through his outer eye and through the touch and field of his natural hand. Words of emancipation didn't arrive until the middle of June, so they called it Juneteenth. So that was it. The night of Juneteenth celebration, his mind went on, the celebration of a gaudy illusion because there were miles to go uh, and miles to go, and we are still realizing that. But in that moment um, of celebration, I'd like for us to end here. Um, thank you so much. I thank all of those. We had over 120 folks sharing space and holding space in commemoration of those, in particular, 250,000 Texans who received word two months after General Grant and General Robert E. Lee met to end the Civil War. Two months later, they learned of their own freedom. And so with that, we thank you. We hope that you have a good night. And uh, please continue to support the programming at the Library Company, uh, the program in African American history, and visit that site that Dr. Greeson just shared for you in commemoration of Juneteenth. Thank you so much, Walter. My pleasure. Joy to see you. Thank you.